Well, good morning. You've had a break from John's Gospel for a couple of weeks, so we will be returning this morning to John 19. If you have your Bibles, you can join me there, John 19. I'd like to pick up reading our scripture of text this morning in verse 16, and I will read down through verse 24. John 19, beginning in verse 16. Speaking of Pilate, it says, So he then handed him, Christ, over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Our Father in heaven, it is our hope that as we gather in your presence, we come with humble hearts, we come with expectant hearts, we come acknowledging that it is your spirit that must guide us in truth, it must be the power and the influence of your spirit that sanctifies us because we hear the truth, we see the truth written on the pages of your scripture. I pray that you would grant me the ability to speak well on the things before us. But, Father, it's our hope that even beyond my voice, it's the voice of the Savior that we hear this morning. We look at the cross of his suffering, and we realize the high price that was necessary to bring salvation to us. And this should stir within our hearts adoration, gratitude, and praise to you. God, a Father that loves sinners enough to redeem. A Savior in your Son who is willing and holy and righteous to accomplish salvation. And as well, your Spirit that grants us the ability to believe that we might be saved. Our praise and our thoughts and our meditations are for your glory and your majesty this morning, our Father. Please lead and direct us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. For the next few weeks, we're going to be focusing specifically on the cross. And this is because as we work our way through the Gospel of John, this is where John the Apostle is taking us. And we observe from these verses before us that John has a much briefer presentation of the cross. And as I've said before, because this Gospel was written much later... John is reflecting on the other three Gospels, the synoptics, and he knows that those authors have covered well some of those details. So in his Gospel presentation, which is considered a bit different than the other three, 
John is here now focusing on the cross and wanting us to see Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah King that God the Father has sent into this world. And the backdrop of that kingship, the backdrop of that kingdom, is the cross. And the cross, as we know, is the focal point of all Old and New Testament scripture. The human history that God has ordained and designed comes to this climax where God himself must die for his people. Beginning in verse 16 of chapter 19, John takes us from the unjust and condemning trial of Jesus, both by Jew and by Gentiles, to the execution of the Savior on this cross. And it's from John's perspective here that we're given the work that Jesus must perform as the true king of his people. The emphasis here is of Jesus as the king of the Jews, yet it is the Jews that are here rejecting him. Yet Jesus, undiminished in his determination to fulfill the calling that God the Father has given to him, presses himself into the sacrificial atonement that must be done for his people, the people of his eternal kingdom. John does not cover all the details that we find in the other three gospel accounts. And we do find a few details from John that the others don't add. But John wants his readers to clearly see Jesus Christ, the true king that the Jews and the Gentiles mocked as a fraud. He further shows that what Jesus Christ was enduring on the cross was the fulfillment of what God the Father had predetermined For his son. Men at this point thought they were in control. The Jews thought they had power. Rome thought they were the ruling force. But God is determining the course of these things, and we learn that from the scriptures, especially in Acts, where God is declared as the one that predetermined these things for his son. So Jesus here is fulfilling the calling of a king. And it's not the picture of a king that most men and women would envision. But it's the king that God the Father knows that we need. And here Christ is fulfilling all of those Old Testament prophecies. One scholar that I was reading this week has taken the time to count 332 specific prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He also took the time to describe what the odds mathematically are for one man, Jesus Christ, to fulfill those 332 specific Old Testament prophecies. So if you envision a fraction in your minds, it would be the number one above the line, the, the numerator, and below the line would be the number 84 with 97 zeros behind it. I don't know what to call that number, so I'm just describing it for you. Those are the odds. And I think that God has so ordained the Old Testament prophecies to make it absolutely impossible for anybody to fulfill those prophecies but his own son. He is the one and only Savior. He is the King. And John wants us to see that picture. And as we move forward into John's description of the crucifixion, we'll want to highlight the details that John gives to us in this kingly work and this kingly presentation. But also noting here that John gives to us three of the seven sayings of Christ from the cross that are recorded in Scripture. For those of you that haven't counted, in the four Gospels, there are seven declarations of Christ while he was on the cross. John covers three of those. 
And because of that, as we move our way into this passage, I want to acknowledge the other four declarations so that we get a broader picture. We give a biblical context to what John is writing here in this gospel. We want to see the king. And so we're going to hear from the king who's hanging on the cross and dying for the sins of his people. So as we make our way through John's narrative here of the cross, I'm going to pause for a few moments and we're going to go back to the other gospels and we're going to look at those other sayings of Christ. There are three of them in the first three hours of Christ hanging on the cross. The other four are in the second half or the next three hours of Christ hanging on the cross. Again, John covers three of these sayings. The gospel of Luke covers three. And the seventh is covered by both Mark and Matthew. We're going to begin this morning in verse 16 and 17, where we see that Christ is here being crucified as a collaborative effort between Jew and Gentile alike. This is where John takes us. Notice in verse 16 the way that John puts it. So he then, Pilate, handed Jesus over to them. And who is the them? Well, we keep it in context, and if you look at the previous verses, what John is saying is that Pilate is handing Jesus over to the demands of the Jews out of the hatred and the bitterness, and Pilate knew of that hatred and bitterness, but of the hatred and bitterness that was in the religious rulers, the Jewish rulers, Pilate is now giving way to their demands. He's tried to find Jesus innocent. He's tried to declare him innocent and set him free. But Pilate is an unscrupulous man. We've seen him as cowardly. And he finally bends to the will of the Jews. And he hands Christ over to their demands. That's what verse 16 is telling us. And it's showing us that both Jew and Gentile, both the religious rulers of the Jewish nation and the ruling authority of the Roman Empire have conspired together, have agreed together, have joined forces together to see God's king crucified. So Pilate hands Jesus over to them. And all four gospel accounts let us know that where Jesus went next is into the hands of the Roman soldiers. Because remember, again, the Jews couldn't crucify, they couldn't execute anybody as long as they were under Roman authority. It had to be the Roman Empire that did the executing. So just to be clear, verse 16, Pilate is handing over to the Jews when in actuality he's handing over Jesus to the demands of the Jews, but Rome is taking control now. And Rome will nail Christ to a cross and stand him up in the air and see his death. What John does communicate to us in verses 16 to 18 is that both Jew and Gentile have come together in an agreement whether by resistance, like we see in Pilate, or by hatred, as we see in the chief priests, they have come together, joined forces to crucify the Messiah sent by God. And little did any of these forces realize they were fulfilling the predetermined plan of God who had appointed a work for the one anointed as the king of God's people, Christ, his own son, Messiah. And we pick up the story as presented by John In verse 17, from verse 17, we observe that John does not spend a lot of time elaborating on the drama or the horror of crucifixion so as to stir up our emotions. 
In fact, the other gospel writers give greater details to the beating and the mockery thrown against Jesus. But as many authors will point out, none of the gospels overemphasize the physical suffering of Jesus Christ. It just remains to the facts. They just keep to the truths. They just keep to the facts of what a crucifixion would do. Leon Morris, the English scholar, writes in, his, in regard to the Gospel of John, that gospel writers, he points out, make no attempt to play on the heartstrings of their readers. And this is in regard to the physical torment of the beating, the scourging, and the execution of Jesus Christ on a cross. And in fact, the more vivid portrayal of Christ's agony is shown in the spiritual realm. Remember how he suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating, as it were, droplets of blood, agonizing over what he's about to experience in bearing the sins of God's people. And then we see him from the cross in one of the seven sayings, crying out to the Father, why have you left me? Where have you gone? Exposing us to the spiritual suffering of Christ. Enough is given to us in the word, in the Gospels, of what Jesus endured physically that we might understand the injustice of men against God's Son and to show what was required of Christ to atone for our sins. And we saw that a couple of weeks ago from Isaiah 53. But Matthew's account tells us that when Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified, he had him scourged first. And this may indicate the second of the scourgings that quite possibly Jesus endured. You go back to chapter 19 and verse 1 of John's gospel. He was scourged by Pilate before the trial had ever been concluded. And remember, Pilate was hoping to beat up on Jesus a little bit, bring him back to the Jews. See, I punished him. Let's drop the whole thing. The Jews were not content with that. The trial proceeds. They demand Jesus to be crucified. Pilate relents. And according to Matthew, before Jesus was sent out to be crucified, Pilate had him scourged likely a second time. And the wording in the Greek language that Matthew uses indicates this is the more severe scourging, as if the first wasn't brutal enough. John only tells us that Jesus went out from Pilate's final judgment, bearing his cross, having been beaten, mocked, and scourged. And according to historians, it was customary for the condemned to carry the cross beam of the cross as the upright portion of the cross was probably already at Calvary and stuck in the ground. So the beam, the cross beam, would have been given to Jesus to carry to the crucifixion site. Now probably some of us have seen those kind of dramatic displays here in this nation where somebody wants to carry the cross from point A to point B. And apparently it's supposed to be some sort of gospel emphasis or gospel presentation. I've seen those uh, pictures of people carrying a cross from the East Coast to the West Coast or vice versa. And it's interesting because they're carrying this pretty little white cross that's got wheels on the back of it. And not only that, it is a whole cross, not necessarily what Jesus carried. And further, whoever's carrying that cross wasn't scourged. So I'm not sure what the point is of those dramatic displays, but it wasn't what Christ endured. John refers to the name of the place where the crucifixion occurred as Golgotha, or the place of the skull. And we're going to touch on that a little bit more next week. But when we visited Israel back in 2012, we were led to the place that they believe is the tomb of Christ. 
And from the tomb of Christ, we could look to one side and they said, this is possibly the bluff or the hill where Christ was crucified on. And if you look at it in just the right way, it has an an impression or maybe an image of a skull. And that's why some believe this was the hill where the crosses were that Christ died on and the other two criminals. Though they don't know that for sure, it is a possible explanation of why this was called Golgotha, the place of the skull. There are some other um, suggestions as to why it was called the place of the skull, but none of them seem all that reasonable. In reality, we really don't know where Christ was crucified. But according to John, it's a place that was familiar to the people then. Golgotha, the place of the skull. And in spite of the fact that the Gospels do not overemphasize the physical suffering of Christ under the torment of Romans' beatings and execution, passages like Isaiah 53 prophesy that Messiah King would endure a great deal of inhumane brutality. And that was necessary. Those scourgings were necessary in some way that we as sinners might be healed. It's what God the Father demanded of his Son. And it speaks to us something of the severity of our vileness, of our sin in the eyes of a holy and a righteous God, and the extent to which God himself would suffer that we might be made whole. One author notes that the most extreme English word we have for pain is excruciating. And that's a pretty descriptive word, I'd say. But apparently... In Latin, that word excruciating means out of the cross, out of the cross. So every time you use that word excruciating in description of pain, it takes our minds back to the cross of Christ and what must be suffered for the sins of God's people. The Roman cross was a form of execution that was designed to be gruesome. It was humiliating. It was supposed to be a very slow, painful death, and it was intended to be visible. That's why they were stood up for all to see. Now, the Gospels don't tell us that Jesus died on a hill. We learn that in the hymnal, but it doesn't necessarily come from God's word. Most likely, the cross was on a hill, though. Because it was the intent of the Roman Empire for people to see this is what happens when you break our laws. It was intended to be brutal. It was intended to be highly visible. And in addition to the pain of scourging and spikes being driven through the wrists and the feet, the very position of the body on the cross would would force the dying victim to fight for every breath. And that's why, according to historians, there was a post put under the feet of the victim so that they could raise themselves up and allow the diaphragm to take the next breath so that it would extend or prolong life. The Romans wanted this thing to go on. Quick death was not sufficient here. Now, a Roman execution on a cross was held largely for slaves and for those that were held in captivity by the Roman Empire. They generally didn't crucify their own citizens, and certainly not the high-class citizens. But this was intended to be a very visible and painful execution to put fear in the hearts of the people. You don't break Roman laws. Now, for our meditation this morning, this is where we draw some application. I want to take a moment, pause here, and examine two of the declarations of Christ 
from the cross. And I'm interjecting these two at these points because in the process that John gives to us of the execution of Christ on the cross, this is where Jesus spoke these words. So you can join me back in Luke 23 and verse 33. Luke 23 and verse 33. Luke 23, verse 33, it says, when they came, and you can see this is where Luke is, is emphasizing the same part of the story of the cross that we're seeing in John 19. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Now, right away, I see a difference here because you go back to John 19. John doesn't even tell us these two men were criminals. It just says Jesus was crucified with two men. It's enough for John to say these were condemned men by Rome to die. They were being crucified with Christ. He doesn't need to go into all the details about their criminal activity. The other three Gospels have covered it. And Luke does here. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, here is the declaration of Christ, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. I think it's often been discussed among Christians that we learn a lot about prayer from the Savior. He teaches us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. We find that the disciples had come to Jesus and they'd said to him, teach us to pray, Master. We have the example of Christ where often he retreats by himself onto a mountain in the nighttime or in the darkness of the early morning hours. And he prays to the Father. We see him praying over the grief and distress of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. And again in the upper room, John 17. But how instructive is it to see Jesus in his most dreadful circumstance, in the greatest crisis that the Son of God could possibly face, beginning his ordeal on the cross with prayer. And he doesn't pray for himself here, you will notice. He's already done that in the upper room. He prayed for himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. But where men have utterly rejected him and treated him with the greatest of hatred and contempt, what does he pray? Father, forgive them. They are ignorant of what they are doing. Now, we are told by Jesus to love our enemies And to pray for those who persecute us. I don't know that there's a more dramatic example given to us in Scripture than to see the Savior doing that on the cross as men are rejecting him and mocking him and beating him and out of hatred, hoping to kill and execute him. They were literally murdering Christ. And truly these men were ignorant of what they were doing. Each of the Jewish rulers that were calling for the execution, each of the high priests that made the decision, that voted against Christ, Herod and Pilate themselves, they died, did they not? And you have to wonder, the moment they died, and on the other side of the grave, what became of their ignorance then? You have to wonder, what are their first thoughts as they woke from the other side of the grave? completely separated from the glory, the peace, and eternal joy of the presence of the one whom they crucified on a cross. What then of their ignorance? Or we might ask, 
what of the things that we do in ignorance. Notice on the back of your, your note sheet for just a moment, a statement by Arthur Pink. He writes, ignorance is not innocence. We have no excuse for our ignorance. God has clearly and fully revealed his will. The Bible is in our hands, and we cannot plead ignorance of his contents except to condemn our laziness. God has spoken, and by his word we shall be judged. We know as believers, though we will stand before the judgment of Christ, we will not be condemned. Praise God for that. But our works will be examined. But what of these men that reject Christ? Ignorance, but not innocence. I happen to know one of my former co-workers is here today, and you might remember this story, but I was thinking back on a time when we were pouring a large foundation on Friday Harbor, and I believe it was the heiress of the Purina dog food company. But this was a large and complicated foundation, and every day we'd go to the airport in Anacortes, and a, a plane would take us out to the island. And there was this one day when it was cold, it was cold in winter, we climbed into the airplane, there was frost on the windshield, the pilot started up the airplane and headed down the taxiway, hoping that by the time we got to the runway, the windshield would be defrosted, and it wasn't, and we went off the runway and nosed into the frozen earth. We climb out of the airplane, and the propeller is all bent up, of course. And we think, well, okay, no problem, get a new propeller. But that's not what you do in those things, right? That whole engine has to be stripped down and rebuilt. And the pilot lost his job from that. This was a military-trained pilot. Some of you military people here. Military-trained. He knew better. He was ignorant, but he was not innocent. And he lost his job as a result of his ignorance. So it is true with these men that were nailing Christ to a cross. They were ignorant of what they were doing. And here is the Savior that they're executing, that they're mocking, that they've beaten. There are passerbys walking by on the, on the thoroughfare in front of these crosses. And they're mocking at Jesus, shaking their heads at this ignorant, foolish man that purported himself to be a king. There are soldiers that have put him there. And what does the Savior do to their ignorance? Praise for it. Praise for their forgiveness. Because even those who did not know what they were doing must be forgiven or otherwise condemned to eternal judgment. Even those who sin in ignorance, they have to be covered by the blood of Christ. And there Jesus is, the first moments of being nailed to the cross of his forgiveness thinking of those who have condemned him, but who would not come under his blood and be forgiven. Luke provides his readers with an amazing contrast here that builds upon this picture of the king. In verse 33, again Luke 23, verse 33, the Jews and the Gentiles joined together in crucifying Jesus and doing so as if he was nothing more than a common criminal to them. We're going to treat him like these other two criminals. And then in verse 34, Luke writes, But, do you see the contrast of conjunction there? Here are the Jews and Gentiles. We hate this guy. Let's nail him to a cross. Stick him with the other criminals. That's all he means to us. But, Jesus, what is his response? 
In other words, the world of unbelievers were executing Jesus, Messiah, along with other criminals, but the response of Jesus to this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what he's doing. And that prayer by Christ the King, nailed to the cross, was answered by the Father as a Roman centurion confesses Christ as he watched the life of Jesus expire. Later in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 citizens in Jerusalem heard the inspired message of Peter the Apostle who retold the account of the execution of Christ and they came to faith. And many of those 3,000 would have been the same people calling for Jesus to be what? Crucify him. In Acts chapter 6, we read that a great many of the priests in Jerusalem also came to faith in Christ. These would have been the men that had condemned Christ to die. And there the Savior is on the cross praying, Father, forgive them. And God the Father does. That's an amazing picture, is it not? Because it's the story of us as believers. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We too were ignorant, but not innocent. But the reality is God could not answer the prayer of his son by simply dismissing the charges of the sinners. He could not ignore man's sin, nor could he choose to treat men as if they didn't sin. Jesus prays for forgiveness as he prepares to die to make full payment for sin. That's how God would forgive. Jesus prays, then he fulfills the very forgiveness that we needed. And he does so knowing that the Father will accept his sacrifice and he will forgive sinners since the plan of redemption through the blood of God's Son was predetermined by God the Father before the foundations of the world were even laid. God had laid out this plan of redemption. The importance of what Jesus prays for here comes from the backdrop of the cross. It is by his death alone that forgiveness of sin must come. And what is most important at this hour for the the Lord to pray for? What's, What's the most important thing on his heart at this moment? We say forgiveness. He's not praying for our health, our prosperity. He's not praying that we'll have great marriages or I'll get a good spouse or I'll have well-behaved kids that I'm going to have a good retirement portfolio. He prays for the forgiveness of sinners on the very cross that will earn forgiveness for them. Jesus was about to die on a cross to satisfy the demands of a holy God that no man could ever provide for his own sins. And what was required by God for sin could only be provided by his son, perfect in righteousness and holy in every way. And there on the cross, this holy son of God would take our sins upon himself. He would receive the judgment of God that our sins deserved and he himself would die to make full payment for the sins of his people. This prayer, then, is a vivid declaration of the love that God the Father and God the Son have for sinners. How perfectly suitable that as Jesus was first lifted up on his cross, before those who put him there, he prays, God, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And for those that God would choose to draw to himself, they truly were forgiven. God answered that prayer. 
And we're going to see one other in just a moment that is important to our study. But going back to John 19, we see Jesus is crucified with two men. It's the other Gospels, again, that tell us these are criminals. John does not. In verse 18, it says, they, There they crucified him and with him two other men. That word men just means two others. There's no identification given to us by John other than that these two men are placed on either side and Jesus in between. John seems to see it as unnecessary to give us any more information than you can find in the other three synoptic Gospels since he only provides one verse for us here. But in adding this verse, John is building upon the portrait of Jesus as our sacrificial king. And there he has been condemned to die by men alongside two others that John is showing us are clearly condemned to die on a Roman cross with him. And in this rejection, the unbelieving world placed Jesus between these two criminals, counting Jesus as nothing more important to them than a common undesirable, a troublemaker of no greater worth than criminals and fit only to be condemned to die along with these other two. That's man's view of Christ at this point. Both Jew and Gentile, they've joined together. This is their view of the king that God had sent. And I previously speculated that in that middle cross position, it may have been intended for who? Barabbas. Remember, they wanted to set Barabbas free. What if they didn't set Barabbas free? Was he intended for that middle cross position? And I'm only speculating here. But if it was intended for Barabbas... We can see the picture that was intended for us to see. That Christ took the place of sinners. He entered into where Barabbas was. Barabbas deserved that middle cross position. Now even if Barabbas was not literally intended to be crucified on that day in that middle position. Nonetheless, the reality that Christ is crucified with two criminals certainly does give us that picture. Jesus is there to represent sinners. He's there to represent his people who are in bondage to sin. Jesus, the innocent, the holy son of God, was falsely accused and condemned to die among vile sinners. But then again, that's why Jesus came to this earth, to represent sinners, taking their sin upon himself. And therefore, on the cross between sinners, it's both appropriate and it's divinely ordained. This was not by accident. God had placed his son there. As a clear picture, he's there to represent us. He's there among sinners. Now, we might expect that in the name of efficiency, the Romans would want to hold an execution like that where they're doing just more than one victim. I mean, you go to all the trouble to arrange this. You plant the crosses. You get all the cross beams and everything in place. Yeah, apparently there were four soldiers that had to oversee this thing. And they had already condemned Jesus to die, and they wanted him dead today. They didn't want to wait. And Pilate gave Jesus into their demands. So get a couple other guys. Who else is waiting on death row? That seems to be the efficient picture, and therefore I speculate that these two criminals were not already being crucified, and Jesus added to their numbers... I believe this was an ordained moment. 
that Jesus Christ was executed alongside criminals was not coincidence. It was predetermined by God's plan. We go back to Isaiah 53, the Old Testament prophecy. It says Messiah would be numbered along with what? Transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, interceded for the transgressors. It was God's design that Jesus be crucified with two other criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Why? Because he is there to represent us. He's there taking the place of sinners. What God had assembled for the making of our salvation efficacious was to place his son, who was undeserving of death, on a cross of sacrifice between two sinful men who were deserving. And the contrast in this portrait is so vivid. The perfect, sinless, and holy Son of God raised up on a cross to die with two convicted criminals on either side of him. We think how humiliating, how inappropriate that that Jesus, Son of God, would be treated in such a shameful way. And it is shameful. But he's experienced that shame to account for our sins. And therefore, God has assembled the scene in such a way that his plan of salvation is raised up And it's put on display. Yet so blind were men to see this portrait. They were ignorant. But again, they were not innocent. At least all but one was going to be crucified in a damnable way. And we want to take a moment and just look at the other one that on that crucifixion cross found salvation. So join me again in Luke chapter 23. And this is the second of the declarations of Christ that are recorded in the Gospels, the second of the seven. And this one that we're talking about here, this criminal, one of the two, hanging on the cross next to Jesus. And while we just considered how there were those who came under the forgiveness of the cross in answer to the Lord's prayer, and they believed later, this one believed that moment. And while on his cross, all were mocking and railing at Jesus, including the two criminals. Both criminals had joined in. John tells us they were crucified on either side of the Lord. John shows us these criminals in connection with the sentiment of Jew and Gentile toward the idea of Jesus being the king. And again, we see the inscription that Pilate demanded, be nailed to the cross. Here's the king of the Jews. Gospel of Luke also gives us a view of these two criminals. And he also adds the second declaration of Christ here on the cross. And it's from this word that Christ makes a solemn promise to one of these criminals. Matthew tells us that there were people passing by as Jesus hung on his cross. They were hurling abusive words at him, mocking him, shaking their heads at what a pathetic man, what a pathetic scene. Matthew also adds that both of these criminals on their crosses were doing the same thing. They were mocking Christ with abusive words. Luke picks up on the story from here, telling us that in the course of time, one of the criminals became silent, observing Jesus, hearing him pray to God, Father, forgive them. They don't know what he's doing. He no doubt observed that Jesus was not protesting his abusers. He was not cursing the tormentors that nailed him there. He was not yelling in defiance at his fate. 
But according to Isaiah 53, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy like a lamb that is led, led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. This criminal was watching. And as that one continued to mock the claim of Christ, to mock Messiah, the other criminal became silent. And then he speaks out in defense of the Messiah. While the one is calling on Jesus to save himself and save them as well, though they were not deserving of Jesus' help, the second criminal rebukes the mockery of the first. So look with me at those words in Luke, again, verse 23, and down to verse 40. Now back up to verse 39. One of the criminals who was hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And again, you picture that inscription on the cross. Jesus, King of the Jews. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Just as the prayer of forgiveness represents why Jesus was there on the cross, so the promise that Christ has made to one of those two criminals represents the salvation that Jesus grants to those sinners who call on him by faith. That Jesus was crucified in between these two criminals, again, was no accident. It was ordained of God. It was ordained by God to show that his son was there to represent sinners. And here on Calvary, one of those sinners receives Christ as his Savior. The other rejects him with mocking disbelief. One died in his sins, awaiting judgment, and was cast into the outer darkness for all eternity. The other was promised paradise. The two criminals on either side of Jesus and what he declared to one of them is a dramatic representation of what the cross of Jesus Christ means to all humanity. Both criminals represent that humanity in that both were condemned to die for their crimes. And we understand that according to Scripture, all men and women are dying as condemned sinners. They just don't know it or they won't believe it. Most will consider the Savior and his cross and think, oh, what a foolish thing, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. Just as the one rejecting criminal had thought, what a foolish thing, mocking the Savior. The other dying criminal, however, took notice of Jesus and came under the fear of God, it says. Do you not fear God? And he saw in Jesus a man who had done nothing wrong. He began to see himself and his companions as they were. He saw his fate as that which he deserved, and he turned from mocking to now acknowledging the Savior. And he speaks to the mocking thief and says, we indeed are suffering justly. We are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Because the Savior accepted this man's testimony, we know then this is genuine repentance. Genuine faith. Not only does he turn from his sins, 
but he turns to Christ. He trusts in Christ for salvation. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now imagine the picture that that one thief is seeing as he says those words. He's looking at a bloody, dying Jesus. A Jesus that the rest of the world sees as helpless and succumbing to the power and the authority of men. But the word of God tells us Christ was in charge of that moment. And something told that thief, Christ is a king, and I want to be with this guy's kingdom. Remember me. He sees triumph. He sees victory there. He's looking at a bloody, dying man, and this is what he sees. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I want to be on your team. I want to go where you are going. That's what true repentance accomplishes. It not only convicts us to think differently about ourselves as sinners and the gospel itself, but it causes us to turn away from sin, to turn to Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. And in this way, this confessing criminal is saying, I want you as Lord. I want you as my king. I want to go to your kingdom. It's a picture of grace in that this criminal had nothing to bring into the cost of salvation. He had no works of righteousness to offer here. He had nothing to negotiate with God. Nothing to negotiate with the Savior. Just a plea. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. It says the hymnal said, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. This man was a living, dying testimony of what? Justification by faith alone. He had nothing to bargain with. Further, the only reason that this man turned from mocking Christ to crying out to him for salvation was a testament to the work of the Holy Spirit. There simply was no evangelistic effort taking place here at the foot of the cross. There were no Christians passing out gospel tracts. There wasn't a guy in a street corner holding up the foghorn, preaching the gospel in an obnoxious way. There wasn't any of this. There were no supporters there. The disciples had run and fled. They were hiding. They were just passerbyers mocking, soldiers belittling, the Jews scorning Christ. There was no gospel effort here. That this one criminal would say, wow, I believe this message. His eyes only saw the Savior. There was no one at the scene who was preaching this gospel except the Holy Spirit who spoke to this man's heart and said to him, this truly is the King of the Jews. This man saw the witness of Jesus himself. And for this one criminal to observe the dying Jesus, turn in faith to him and ask Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That can only be a work of God's spirit in the heart of the sinner. That's exactly, is it not, what Jesus taught in John 3. You must be born again. It's got to be a work of the spirit. And the Holy Spirit had moved in response to the Savior's prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This one criminal was mocking Christ. He didn't know what he was doing. He was ignorant, but he wasn't innocent. But God answered the prayer of his son. And so we see the first convert, a dying criminal coming to faith as a work of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit was responding to the Son's prayer to the Father from the cross. It is the Father who must draw all sinners to His Son. If any are to be saved, we saw that in John chapter 6. If any are to come to salvation, 
It's got to be the Father that is drawing that one to see the Son for who he is. It's the Spirit of God the Father that spoke to that criminal and drew him to the Son. Otherwise, how could this criminal come to faith in a rejected and dying man? A faith that took him from mocking Jesus to now declaring him a king that had the authority to save him, authority to forgive him, authority to grant him entrance into an eternal paradise, heavenly kingdom. How does he come to that understanding from just nailed to a cross next to this guy? Both criminals picture sinful humanity and dying with them is the Savior who has come to represent sinners. There are those who mock and reject his dying sacrifice, but there are also those who the Spirit turns in faith to trust in the forgiveness that comes by the Savior's work on the cross. This is a picture of every believer's true king. This is how we came to faith. We had nothing to offer God, nothing to negotiate our salvation. We're condemned and dying in our sins. And the Spirit of God comes in answer to our Savior's prayer, Father, forgive them, opens our heart, The Spirit does this work, and we see Christ for who he is. Not just a bloody dying man, but a king who would die for my sin and grant me entrance into his kingdom. Then comes the promise of the Savior. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. When Jesus said, truly I say to you, he was making this sinner a solemn promise based on the trustworthiness of God himself. And I want you to observe in this declaration by Christ the promise being made to this criminal and to every sinner that comes to Christ by faith. In saying today, Jesus was letting this thief know that there was no waiting necessary. He didn't have to wait for the resurrection. He didn't have to wait to do sufficient amount of good works to gain access into where Jesus was going. There was no passing through a place called purgatory. There is no soul sleep here. The scripture is clear enough. Truly I say to you, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. This is what the Apostle Paul taught, isn't it? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. The moment a believer draws his last breath in this life, They're in the presence of the Savior, just as was this criminal. It's based on the promise of Christ. Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes, To depart this world is to be with Christ. The moment a believer leaves this life, they're in the presence of the Savior. What Jesus promised this condemned and dying criminal is that based on his faith in the saving work of Christ, the moment he breathed his last there on a cross next to the Savior, He would be with Jesus in paradise. And so it is true for every gospel believer. When this life ends for us, we will be with Jesus. My mom died a week ago. And it's sad to see her go. But she's there with Christ. And so all who believe will be there. There is often much discussion among believers regarding deathbed conversions. Are they real? It's impossible, I think, for us to discern whether or not a man in those final moments or a woman in those final moments of life 
and they profess to come to faith in Christ, is it genuine or not? It might just be desperation. It might just be fire insurance. It may not be real, real saving faith. And it is very likely that there are very few truly saved on their deathbed. But the promise made to this dying criminal should teach us that it's never too late to cry out to the Savior in faith. Now, we would certainly exhort men, don't wait, because you may not have a deathbed experience. Death may come more suddenly than that. Death may come without warning. Deathbed conversions may be rare. But one of the Puritans wrote these words, There is one such case recorded in Scripture that none need despair, but only one in Scripture so that none might presume. We need not despair. Here we see a picture of a man on his deathbed, death cross, if you will. And in his final moments, he blurts out, Jesus, Messiah, King, take me to your kingdom. And Jesus makes him this solemn promise, I truly say to you, in a truth, you will be today with me in paradise. What the story of the two criminals shows us is that no one is beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace to save. One thief rejected Christ on his deathbed. The other cried out in faith and was promised eternal life. And this promise gives us assurance for salvation as well. If you are a believer, and if you're following along on the note sheets, I'm going to give you some fill-in-the-blanks here just to let you know where we are. What this promise by Christ gives to us is that it promises that salvation is not of works. It is not of works. Because the thief had none. He was condemned to die, and in his own words, he said, I deserve this. It's what my life has earned. That salvation, the promise of Christ, tells us that salvation is not of works. The promise of the Savior here tells us that salvation comes through repentance and faith. Through repentance and faith, as demonstrated by this criminal, and this was accepted by Christ. That's how we know this man's repentance and faith was genuine. Christ accepted it. It is a promise that saving faith is also a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had taught. We are called on to share the gospel, to preach the word, to pray for souls that they might be saved. And we make gospel tracts, we write books, we witness for Christ, we live for him before the world in the hopes that we will be a faithful witness for Christ. And while God is pleased to use us and to use tracts and, and preaching messages as instruments of evangelism, isn't it good to go know that God is not limited to our instrumentality? He uses us, but he doesn't need us. And that's the testimony of one man that is praising God to this day that hung on a cross next to the Savior and by no merit of his own or anybody else's, by the grace of God alone, he's there with the Savior. Salvation is always of the Lord. And finally, the promise of Christ gives to us the assurance that the moment death comes, believers will be present with Christ. The moment death comes, believers will be present with Christ. That's his promise. Truly, I say to you, today, you will be in prayer to us. We know that where the Son of God is, 
There can be no disappointments and no loss. Only the eternal reward of sharing in his glory and his riches. And if you're a believer here this morning, that's where you're going. If you are not a believer, we would just encourage you, look at the Savior. Look at the Savior. He is the king that our God has sent to provide salvation through his own sacrifice on a cross. And it's through him that we receive the forgiveness of sin. By repentance and faith, we turn and say, would you take me a sinner? Father in heaven, we give thanks for the promise that you've made through your son that we can be with you in paradise forever because of his sacrifice and because of the work of faith that you gift to us through your Holy Spirit. Cause us to find our assurance, our confidence in this. I pray that you will make us bold in our witness for Christ, both verbally and in our living testimony before the world. And I pray, Father, that any that might be hearing this message who are yet without Christ, that you would do the work that only your spirit can do as we witness on that one thief hanging next to your son. How we praise God for that picture of our king hanging there among sinners because he came to represent us. How we praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen.